that golden spire is going to be a hard act to follow. So I'll give them that. We're there in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. And like we've been talking about, uh, we started last week this uh, a two-part sermon, a two-part series on the subject of how to read and study the Bible. And the last week, uh, we focused on, I gave you seven principles for how to read the Bible. And here's what you need to understand. The emphasis in the, in the Bible when it comes to reading and studying the Bible is on Bible reading. It, you know, in fact, the, the word study is only found three times in the entire Bible. One of them is a negative reference. There's two positive references to it. And we're going to see probably the most famous one here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. But I want you to understand that the emphasis must be in reading God's word. And before you study, I remember when I was uh, a young man, uh, I had a pastor who said to me, uh, who, who taught the church that, you know, you should really read the Bible cover to cover five times before you even begin to study the Bible. And, you know, that's not found in scripture. That's not, uh, you know, it's not a sin to study before that or whatever. But the idea was that you need to get grounded in the word of God, you know, and you need to understand what the Bible says. Sometimes people ask me, you know, when I preach sermons and they say, oh, man, it's interesting how you connect things. Or you can see how things connect throughout the scriptures. But listen, those things will come to you the more and more you read the Bible. You'll begin to notice those things. So I want you to understand the emphasis, which is why we spent an entire sermon on it uh, last week, is on reading the word of God. And that's why. Uh, we have the nine chapters a day challenge where we're challenging people to read nine chapters of the New Testament every day in the month of January to get acquainted with the word of God. Today, I'm going to focus on 15 rules for how to study the Bible, 15 rules for how to study the Bible. And like I said, tonight is our Christmas Eve service. I hope you'll make it. The adult choir will be singing. They don't they're not as good as the children's choir, but they do a good job. And uh, we'll have desserts afterwards, and we'll have hot chocolate. I hope you'll make it tonight. Tonight I'm preaching on the wise men. And before we get into the sermon about the wise men, I want to deal with some misconceptions about the wise men. There's a lot of false teaching taught about the wise men, and we're going to talk about that tonight. So I encourage you to be here. The Christmas sermon is tonight. Tonight we're going to talk, this morning we're going to talk about rules for studying the Bible. Now, you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse number 15. The Bible says this, Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You say, why should someone study the Bible? And here's why. You should study to show thyself approved and so that you will not be ashamed. You should study to show thyself approved and so that you will not be ashamed. You see, oftentimes people come up with you know, dumb ideas or dumb doctrines or things that don't make sense in the Bible. And honestly, you'll end up being embarrassed if you don't study the Bible and understand the Bible and know the Bible and, 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 and know what the Bible says about certain things. For example, last week, and I'm not going to get off on this rabbit trail, but I just saw it here in, uh, in, in, in the chapter that we were reading. But last week, uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, studying the Bible and calling upon the Lord. Uh, man, good night. I saw it here just a second ago. Now I can't find it. But in this chapter, it talks about calling upon the Lord from a pure heart. In verse number 22, it says, Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And again, it's just interesting. As you study the Bible, I didn't even notice that verse. There's another verse on calling upon the Lord. And notice it comes from a pure heart. And that goes with what we were talking about last week. Here's another interesting verse. This has nothing to do with anything, but look at verse 23. It says, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. You know, I grew up in public school where they told us there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. 
Brother Stuckey told me recently, he gave me a, uh, a quote for the bulletin. He said, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There's only stupid people that ask questions. And I, anyway, I thought that was interesting. But uh, study to show thyself approved unto God. We're, we're looking at this idea of studying the Bible. Go to 2 Peter chapter number 1. If you're there in 2 Timothy, you're just going to go uh, past Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter number 1. I'm going to give you 15 rules for Bible study. I believe that the preaching of, uh, of the church should be everything that Christians need to equip them for the Christian life. So this morning might feel like you're in some sort of a Bible college classroom. I'm going to give you rules for Bible study, things you should be following in regards to how to study the Bible. I'd encourage you to write these down. If you don't have a baby on your lap, uh, write down the 15 rules so you can have them, so you can reference them as you read and study the Bible for yourself. Especially if you're going to go in ministry one day, you need to know and understand how to read and study the Bible. I want to encourage you to write these statements down. First Peter chapter, I'm sorry, uh, second Peter, second Peter chapter number one is where I'd like you to be. Second Peter chapter number uh, one and verse number 20. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says this, second Peter chapter one and verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture, notice what the Bible says, is of any private interpretation. The Bible says that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Here's what the Bible is teaching us in this passage is that no one should be able to look at the Bible and say, I found something, I've seen something, I've acquired something that nobody else can see, understand, or acquire. The Bible says that the scripture is, that the prophet, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So here's point number one. I'm going to try to move through these as quickly as we can this morning. I got 15 of them, all right, so we'll see how far we get. But here's point number one. Make sure you understand the context. Make sure you understand the context. When it comes to studying the Bible, you need to make sure you understand the context. And you say, well, why does the context matter? Because no one should be able to twist Scripture into, into saying whatever you want it to say. See, all false doctrine has some Scripture that they're twisting and that they're taking out of context. And in order to keep you safe from going into false doctrine... You need to make sure that you understand the context of a passage. Why? Because that puts limits as to how you can interpret the scripture. You say, well, how do I know if I know the context? Well, it's simple. If you're going to answer these questions about the passage. When you're studying a passage of scripture, you ought to be able to answer these questions. All right? They're easy. Who, what, when, where, why? Who, what, when, where, why? You should not stand, you know, you men, you should not stand up to preach a sermon out of a text in the Word of God, if you can't answer the questions, who, what, when, where, why? You say, well, why does it matter? Why does the context matter? Because the context will keep you, it will be the boundaries that keep you from misinterpreting Scripture. You say, is it possible to misinterpret Scripture? Well, the Bible says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. I should be able to stand up and say, hey, let me give you the context of this passage. Here's the who, here's the what, here's the when, here's the where, here's the why, here's why this passage is telling us what it's telling us. And you should be able, with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, to say, yes, that is what the passage says. So you need to make sure you understand the context. Someone said this, don't arrest the text from the context. And look, whenever you're building an entire doctrine, off of one verse that you pulled out of context, you are going into false doctrine. 
you're going into false heresy. You should be able to read the entire chapter in its context, understand the verses leading up to wherever you're going and going after, and it should all fit together. It should all flow together. You should understand the context of the paragraph in which you find the verse. You should understand the context of the chapter in which you find the verse. You should understand the context of the book in which you find the verse of the testament in which you find the verse. It should all flow together. None of it should contradict itself. So what's point number one for how to read and study the Bible? Well, the first rule you need to understand is make sure you understand the context. Don't arrest the text from the context. Why? Because no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Now keep your place there in First Peter or Second Peter. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, come right back to, to Second Peter. Uh, but go, go to, go to uh, actually, you know what? Look, look at verse number 21. Let me give you the second point real quickly before we leave First Peter. But we are going to leave it and come back to it. So I want you to put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there. Second Peter chapter 1. Here's, here's point number 2. Here's a second rule for Bible uh, for Bible study. Rule number one was make sure you understand the context. Rule number two, write this down. What the narrator says trumps what the character says. What the narrator says trumps what the character says. You say, what does that mean? What are you talking about? Well, you're there in Second Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 21. We just saw verse 20. Uh, 20. Look at verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Notice what it says. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is a verse on the inspiration of Scripture. The Bible teaches that the Bible itself was inspired by God. It was spoken by God. God spake these words. He, he breathed them out of his mouth. You say, well, I thought it was the men who spoke those words, who wrote those words. And here's what you need to understand. God used men to write the Bible in the same way that you and I use a pen to write a letter. If I wrote you a note and you said, well, the pen wrote that note, well, that's probably accurate. The pen did write the note, but the pen was used by someone to write the words. Well, the men were used by God. Holy men of God spake, not their own words, they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Keep your place there in 2 Peter. Go to the book of Acts. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Keep your place in 2 Peter. We're going to come back to it. But go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Let me give you another example of this. Remember David? David and Goliath, King David? David wrote a lot of scripture. He wrote a lot of the Bible. And I want you to notice what the Bible says about David's writings. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. The Bible says this. Acts 1, 16. Men and brethren... The scripture must needs have been fulfilled. Notice what it says. Which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. Do you see that? So according to Acts 1.16, when we read the writings of David, we read the Psalms, who is the one speaking? Well, you say, well, it was David speaking. But the Bible says that it was the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. See, it was the Holy Ghost using David to speak his words. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You say, why does that matter? Here's why that matters. When you're reading the Bible, you're there in Acts, go to the book of Luke. Just uh, go backwards, past the book of John, into the book of Luke. When you're reading the Bible, you will often read what we call the narrator, the person who's writing the book. For example, in the book of Luke, when you're reading the story, 
What you're reading is Luke telling us what's happening in the story. But here's what you need to understand. It's not Luke speaking. It's the Holy Ghost speaking by the mouth of Luke. You understand what I'm saying? It's the Holy Ghost speaking by the mouth of David. It's holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So here's what you need to understand. When you find the narrator speaking in the Bible, it's not that man speaking, but it's the Holy Ghost speaking through that man. Now, what you'll also find in the scripture, especially when you're reading through narratives, which are the books of the Bible that have stories in them, you find characters interacting with each other. And those characters are speaking. You need to understand the difference between the two because sometimes the narrators of the Bible and the characters in the story will say contradicting things. You say, was that a contradiction in the Bible? Well, no, it's not, and I'll explain that to you in a second. But let, let's look at Luke chapter 2. It's, a, it's Christmas Eve, so it's good to look at a, a Christmas passage. Luke chapter 2, look at verse number 21. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. I want you to notice Ask yourself this question, right? Because you, you want to get the context. Who, what, when, where, why? So here's the question. Who is speaking? Who is speaking in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21? Notice what it says. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, who was so named of the angel before he was conceived. Sam Gibb needs to read that verse. In the womb, all right? So notice it says, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here's the question I have for you. In verse 21, who is speaking? Well, it's the narrator. It's Luke just telling us about the birth of Christ. And we know it's not Luke. It's the Holy Ghost speaking through Luke. It's the narrator of the passage. And when the days of purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, just for sake of time, skip down to verse 25. Notice what it says. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And again, we're just being told a story. We're reading a story. Luke is writing for us under the inspiration of the, whole, of the Holy Ghost. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. Skip down to verse 28, just for sake of time. Notice what he says. Then took he. All right, this is Luke telling us. Then took he. Who's the he? That's Simeon. Then took he him. Who's the him? That's Jesus, the baby Jesus, up in his arms, that's Simeon's arms, and blessed God and said. Now, hold on a second. Notice what he said. He's telling us Simeon took up Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, notice what he said, verse 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Here's a question I have for you. Who is now speaking in verse 29? It's Simeon. You understand what I just said? Simeon, Luke is telling us what Simeon said. He said, hey, you know, he, uh, uh, verse 28, and said, and now he's telling what Simeon said. The quote begins at verse 29. It ends at verse 32. Notice, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And quote, verse 33, notice, now we're back to the narrator, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. So I want you to understand, when you're reading the Bible, you often go back and forth between the narrator, and then you'll get quotes from the characters, what the characters said in the story. You say, why is that important? Well, look down at verse 42, same chapter. Let's fast forward in the story of Christ. Luke chapter 2 and verse 42. Luke 2, 42. And when he was 12 years old, so now Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. 
And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. All right? So they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. They're now going back home. Jesus stays in Jerusalem. All right? And Joseph, I want you to notice verse 43. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, in verse 43, who is speaking? Are we reading a character speaking in the story, or are we reading the narrator simply telling us the story? Verse 43 is the narrator. Now, notice how the narrator is careful. The Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Notice how Luke is careful to say, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. The narrator, the Holy Ghost, is careful to tell us it was Joseph and his mother. Look at verse 44. Let's continue in the story. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. Can you believe Mary and Joseph lost Jesus? 12-year-old Jesus? Some of you leave your, kid, your kids in church. You go home and you realize, oh, our kid's still in church. Don't feel too bad, all right? Joseph and Mary left him in, in Jerusalem, you know. Verse 46, and it came to pass that after three days, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answered. And when they saw him, verse 48, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him. Okay, so now, the next statement, who's speaking? Is it the narrator? Or is it a character? Well, it says his mother said unto him. So guess who's going to start talking now? It's Mary. Notice what she says. Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Notice what Mary says. Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Now, people will look at this passage and say, well, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Look, the Bible says that Joseph was Jesus' father. That's a, that's a mistake in the Bible. But hold on a second. The Bible didn't say that Joseph was Jesus' father. Mary said that Joseph was Jesus' father. In fact, the narrator of the Bible is careful to distinguish and say Joseph and his mother. You say, well, here's what you need to understand. The statement that Mary made, was it an accurate statement? It's not true in the sense that it's not an accurate statement. In fact, if you read the passage, Jesus uh, corrects her. He says, Know ye not that I must be about my father's business? Because she said, your father and I are searching you. And he's like, oh, really? Because I'm doing my father's business. You know, highlighting the fact that Joseph isn't my father. God is my father. That's what Jesus was saying. But here's what I want you to understand. It was not true in the sense that it was inaccurate. And by the way, Mary was a sinner. She made mistakes like anybody else. She was a blessed woman. She was chosen of God to bring forth the, uh, the, the Son of God. But she wasn't without sin. She wasn't deity. She made a mistake. She said something she shouldn't have said. But here's the thing. You say, well, does that mean that there's a, the Bible is not true? No, here's what you need to understand. It's a true statement in the sense that that's what she really said. Do you understand what I just said? It's accurate in the sense that that's what she really said. But here's what you need to understand. In the Bible, not everything that a character says is accurate. Not everything that a character says is true. Now, it's true in the sense that that's what the character actually said. Mary actually said these words. But what she said wasn't true. In the Bible, you'll find Satan himself being quoted, where Satan is speaking. What Jesus said about Satan, that he was the father of lies, that everything he says is a lie. 
So it's recorded what Satan said, but everything he said was a lie. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you come to Bible study, you need to understand that the narrator trumps the character. What the narrator says trumps what the character says. I don't have time to really develop this a lot. I just, I, you know, that's something that you can study out on your, on your own. Go to the book of Acts. You got Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter 19. But let me, let me give you another example. In the Old Testament, you have a story of Saul who dies. And you get two different stories in the Old Testament about how Saul dies. And often people will pin those against each other and say, there's a contradiction in the Bible. But here's what you need to understand. In the passage in 1 Chronicles, we have the narrator of the Bible, whoever wrote 1 Chronicles, telling us how Saul dies. In the, in the passage in 2 Samuel, you have an Amalekite servant coming to David, and he's telling David how Saul died. So here's the question. You have a narrator telling us how Saul died, and then you have a character in the Bible telling us how Saul died. You say, is that a contradiction of scripture? No, the character's lying. Because holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Whatever the narrator of the Bible says, it's true all the time. Because it's the Holy Ghost speaking. Whatever the characters say, it's true in the sense that that is what the Amalekite actually said to David. Because he was trying to get a reward. Thinking that, you know, if he told David, I killed your enemy, that David would give him a reward when David really just killed him for, you know, not... Uh, for, for, for killing Saul, you know, because that's what David thinks happened. You understand what I'm saying? Here, that's what Mary actually said, but what she said wasn't true. So when you're studying the Bible, the narrator always trumps the character. Number three, here's another rule. When you're studying the Bible, the statements trump the stories. The statements trump the stories. Why? Because the Bible is filled with either statements or stories. And, you know, let me say this. Like, we're studying 1 Corinthians on Wednesday night. 1 Corinthians is not a narrative, right? A narrative is a book that has stories in it, like the Gospels, 1st, 2nd Samuel, the book of Judges, the book of Joshua. 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So guess what? In 1 Corinthians, there are no characters. There's only the narrator, Paul, who's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So everything in 1 Corinthians is true. But when you're studying a passage that has stories in it, with characters in it, and they're speaking, what the, what the character's saying is true in the sense that that's what the character said, but what they said may not necessarily be true. You always have to go with the narrator versus the character. Number three, you always have to go with the statement versus the story. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me give you an example. Acts 19. Look at verse 1. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass that while, and what we're going to do this morning is just, I'm going to give you a lot of, just give you a statement and then give you an example of it so you kind of understand what I'm saying. Acts 19.1, and it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believe? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be a holy, any Holy Ghost. You know, it's interesting, Jesus said that John was the greatest man who lived, and John had converts that weren't saved. You know, from time to time, we're all going to have converts that aren't really saved, okay? It's just part of the game. Verse 3, and he said unto them, and to what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. And then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, notice the last part of verse 5, 
They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now today, you have the oneness crowd who says, you shouldn't baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You should only baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you just ask them, well, where did you get that? And they're like, well, in the book of Acts. That we find stories where it says that they baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, well, number one, just because it says that they baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus doesn't mean they didn't also baptize in the name of the Father and of the Holy Ghost. So you're reading into that. But let's say you're right. Let's say Paul, for whatever reason, baptized only in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. In the book of Acts, we're reading a story. We're being told by the narrator, who happens to be Luke as well, who wrote the book of Acts. He's telling us what happened in the story. So here's the question. Should we go with a clear statement in the Bible, or should we go with a story of what somebody did. We'll go to the book of Matthew. If you go backwards, you're going to go past John, Luke, Mark, into the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 28. Now, remember when I told you when a character is speaking in the Bible, you always have to be careful. What they said may be right, but it may not be right. So you have to study that out. Now, there's one character you never have to worry about. Everything they said is right. Take one guess who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus says is true. Everything Jesus says is right. And if you have a red letter edition Bible, it's easy when you know, you know, the words in red, those are all right. <laughs> you know, that's everything you said is right. Now, notice what Jesus said, Matthew 28, 19. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. He's, these are statements that Jesus made. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you in law and with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, here's the question. We have a clear statement from Jesus how we ought to baptize. We ought to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But in Acts 19, we also have a story that seems to maybe look like they might have only baptized in the name of the Lord. Which one do we go with? Statements always trump stories. Do you understand what I just said? In the Bible, you find a clear statement where Jesus said about getting married. He said, twain shall be one flesh. He said, two will become one. But you also find stories where we see guys that are marrying multiple wives. Well, which one do you go to? Well, you go with the clear statement because the Bible is just is full of stories in people's lives. It's telling us what people did, but that doesn't necessarily mean what they did was right. So we always go with the statement. Not the story. So when it comes to Bible study, number one, make sure you understand the context. Who, what, when, where, why. Number two, the narrator trumps the character. Number three, the statement trumps the story. So if you have a story that seems to look like something, but then you have a statement in like Ephesians or 1 Corinthians that says something different, we always go with the statement, not necessarily the story. For the same reason that we always go with the narrator, not necessarily what the character says. Because the story may just be telling us what somebody did. Not necessarily telling us whether what they did was right or wrong. Number four, uh, go to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number four. You're there in Matthew. You got Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter four. Here's Bible study rule number four. Approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. Always approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. See, oftentimes when you come to someone with a teaching that they don't like, 
You know what they'll say? They'll say, oh, that's symbolic. Oh, that's not, yeah, that was, that was uh, you know, a parable. That wasn't something, that was figurative. That wasn't God, something God actually wanted to do. Listen to me. You should always approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. Meaning, you have to prove, the burden of proof is that you show that it's figurative speech, a parable, an allegory. You, the burden is for you to prove that. Not for someone to prove it's literal. It's always literal unless it's otherwise stated that it's not literal. So give me an example of that. Well, Galatians 4, look at verse 22. Galatians 4, 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. Now, this is a true story. This actually happened in Genesis. But he who was of a bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman by the promise. Look at verse 24. Which things are an allegory. Now, what's an allegory? An allegory is a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. He said, which things are an allegory, for these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai that generates the bondage, which is Agar. And then he goes on. So he uses the story of these two boys as an allegory of the law versus the, the, the bond, you know, being in bondage to the law versus being free in Christ. All right? But here's the thing. Is it literally, did those children literally... You know, represent those things? No, it's an allegory. You say, well, how do you know? Because he told us. But if he doesn't tell us, you take the story literally. You know, people try to say, oh, it's a, they don't like Luke 16 where there's a man who dies and goes to hell and lifts up his, his eyes. And they'll say, oh, that's a parable. You got to prove that's a parable. You can't just say, I don't like a passage, so I'm going to make it a parable. It's the burdens on you to make it figurative. You always approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. You always approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. Go to Matthew. Go back to Matthew. But while you go there, let me just give you some examples, okay? Say, how do you know if something's a parable? Many parables start off like this. Let me just read a list for you. You go to Matthew. I'll read this list. Hear ye therefore the parable, Matthew 13, 18. Another parable put he forth, Matthew 13, 24, Matthew 13, 31. Another parable spake he unto them, Matthew 13, 33. Here another parable, Matthew 21, 33. Now learn a parable of Matthew 24, 32 and Mark 13, 28. And he spake also a parable unto them, Luke 5, 36, Luke 6, 39, Luke 12, 16. He spake also this parable, Luke 13, 6. And he put forth a parable, Luke 14, 7. And he spake this parable unto them, Luke 15, 3, Luke 18, 1. And he spake this parable unto certain which, Luke 18, 9. And spake a parable, Luke 19, 11. Then he began he to speak to the people this parable, Luke 29. And he spake to them a parable, Luke 21, 29. This parable spake Jesus unto them, John 10, 6. You say, why didn't you read that list? Because I want you to understand, a lot of times the Bible tells you, hey, what's coming? It's a parable. It's not a real story. He tells you, uh, right before he tells you, he says, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a parable. So look, you always approach the Bible as literal unless otherwise stated. And if you're trying to make something sound like it's figurative when you can't prove it, you're wrong. You have to just go with what the Bible says. Now, let me say this. Not all parables, many parables, you are given the heads up, hey, what's coming next is a parable. Not all parables, however, have that. So you also have to look for uh, simile-type wording. You say, what's a simile? It's a figure of speech that directly compares two things. Similes explicitly use connecting words, such as like, as, so, then, or various verbs, such as uh, as, uh, resemble, though these specific words are not always necessary. So let me give you a list. These are similes that are used throughout the Bible. 
you know, a lot of these are found in the Gospels. A lot of them are found in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has a lot of symbolic meaning. But not everything in Revelation is symbolic. You say, well, how do I know if it's symbolic or it's literal? Well, you assume it's literal unless you can prove that it's not. So if you find statements like, like this where they'll, they'll say something and it'll say, like and unto, is like to, is like unto, is as, be likened unto, like unto, as it were. When you find statements that are preceded by as it were, then you can pretty much be assured that it's not literal. It's figurative. He says he heard as it were a trumpet. He said he heard a voice as it were a trumpet. He, as it, he didn't actually hear a trumpet. He's just telling you it was loud like a trumpet, right? We just heard trumpets today. You know, so you need to approach the Bible as always being literal unless you can prove otherwise, unless otherwise proved, uh, uh, proven or otherwise stated. Matthew 25, here's point number five. And I know I'm giving you a lot, but, you know, when it comes to Bible study, you need to be, you know, uh, understand these things. Number five, Matthew 25, verse 14. Number five, here's, here's rule for Bible study number five. Doctrine... Doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage. So we just talked about how to know whether a passage is literal or not. Once you've understood, okay, I'm dealing with a passage that's not literal. It's a parable. It's an allegory. It's figurative. It's symbolic. Doctrine should not be drawn from non-literal passage that contradicts the doctrine taught in a clear and literal passage. Let me say that again. Doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradicts the doctrine taught in a clear and literal passage. So if you're going to a parable to prove that's the only, you know, to prove some doctrine, you're in trouble. Because doctrine should not be drawn from non-literal passages that contradict the doctrine taught in a clear, literal passage. Okay, well, give me an example. Okay, well. I don't have time to go into it, but I mean, does everybody in this room understand that the Bible clearly teaches eternal security? I mean, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, that's a clear statement in the scripture. That's the narrator, Titus, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, speaking, all right? But then you'll have people today that'll go to a parable to try to show you that you can lose your salvation. Go to, go, go to Matthew 25. Look at what it says. Verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven... Is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servant and delivered unto them his goods. And, and let me say this. I was out soul winning with Brother Joe Jones a few weeks ago, and he was giving the gospel to somebody, and he asked him about, you know, do you believe you can lose your salvation? And the guy said, yeah. And it basically came up, well, you know, where do you get that from the Bible? And he went to this parable. He's like, let me show you that you can lose your salvation. And, and he went to this parable where there's a man who's traveling into a far country, he delivered unto them his goods, verse 15, and unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. That's very important. There's three servants. He gives one five talents. He gives one two talents. He gives one one talent. To every man according to several ability, and straightway took his journey. Now, I don't have time to go through this whole thing. Look, look down at verse 24 for sake of time. Okay, he goes, he comes back. The guy with five talents brought back five more talents. The guy with two talents brought back two more talents. Look at verse 24. 
Then he which had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talents in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. And his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Verse 28, Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Now this guy said, see, the talent is the Holy Ghost, and it was taken from him. So he lost his salvation. Does the Bible say, doesn't the Bible say that we are sealed until the day of redemption with the Holy Ghost? Now look, there's a lot of things that we don't understand about parables. But here's what I can tell you about this parable. This guy did not lose his salvation. Now, you may want to say he was never saved to begin with. He was a tear among the weak. Say whatever you want. But here's what you can't say. You can't say this guy got saved and lost his salvation because that would contradict clear statements in Scripture. And the doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradicts what's clearly taught in literal passages. And look, I understand that there's an argument to be made that this guy went to hell, verse 30, and cast ye the unprofitable servants into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But here's what you can't say. You can't say the guy lost his salvation. Because throughout the Bible, it is taught that you cannot lose your salvation. There's a lot, and I preach sermons on I'm not going to go on that rabbit trail. But you need to understand, doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradicts the doctrine taught in a, clearly, in a clear and literal passage. Now, let me, let me also say, say this. Non-literal passages or a non-literal passage should, not be, should, should be used to reinforce doctrine, not as the only proof for a doctrine. See, if the only proof you have for losing your salvation is the parable of the talents, you're in trouble. Look, you need a, clearly, a clear statement that says you lose your salvation. You can, you can lose you know, eternal life. You can't go to a non-literal passage and that be your only proof. Let me say this, number seven. So number five was non-literal passage should not be used to reinforce doctrine. Uh, I'm sorry. Number five was doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradicts doctrine in a clearly uh, literal pa- in a clear literal passage. Number six is this: non-literal passages should be used to reinforce doctrine, not as the only proof for a doctrine, but also this. Number seven: do not add a meaning to a non-literal passage, a symbolic passage. That cannot be backed up by some other scripture. You, you can't add a meaning to a parable, to an allegory, that you can't back up from another passage. Because here's the thing. The guy said to us, see, he lost his talent. And the talent is the Holy Ghost. And he lost the Holy Ghost. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Because remember, the first rule of Bible study is make sure you understand the context. Who, what, when, where, what. So if the guy that had one talent... And the talent, according to this guy, represents the Holy Ghost. He lost the talent. Okay, so th- does that mean that the first servant got five Holy Ghosts? And the second servant got two Holy Ghosts? That doesn't make sense. See, you can't go to a parable and say, I'm going to make this mean whatever I want it to mean so I can teach whatever I want. That's not how you study the Bible. So here's what you can't. The talent could not have been the Holy Ghost. The talent could not have been salvation. You know why? Because it's not that one guy gets five salvations, one guy gets five Holy Ghosts, one guy gets two. Like, he's got like five lives, like some sort of cat or something. He can lose it four times, but he's still good as long as he keeps the last one. But the guy that got one, that doesn't make sense. They will, 
you know, do you understand what all the parables mean? Look, I don't understand what all the parables mean. I, I understand the parables that Jesus explains. And other parables, we can connect thoughts and we can study things out. But you need to be careful about drawing hard doctrines out of non-literal passages. Why? Because doctrines should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradict doctrines taught in a clear and literal passage. Because non-literal passages should not be used, should be used to reinforce doctrine, not as the only proof of a, of a doctrine. And because you cannot add a meaning to a symbolic passage, to a non-literal passage, that cannot be backed up by other scripture. Number eight, when interpreting a non-literal passage, i.e. the parable, symbolic passage, allegory, when interpreting a non-literal passage, Look for what things in the passage represent throughout the entire Bible, right? Because here's the thing. If you could show me how a talent represents the Holy Ghost in other places in the Scripture, then you may have a point. But you can't just make stuff up. You can't just say, well, the talent represents the Holy I can say, the talent represents poodles' dogs. One guy got five poodles. The other guy got two poodles. One had one poodle that got taken away from him. You can't, you can't just make stuff up. You've got to be able to prove it from the Bible. You say, give me an example. Go to Luke chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Let's look at another parable, and I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And this is literally, people will come to me and say, well, I, I disagree with this doctrine that this church has. And I'm like, well, where does the Bible teach otherwise? And they'll go to some parable. Well, in the parable, this means this. Well, can you prove that? You can't just make stuff up. You can't just decide, well, this means this and this means that. You're not God. Okay, these are the words of the Holy Ghost. You have to be able to prove what the Bible says. And if you can't, then we just say, I don't know. I don't know what it means. And look, and we get this idea that the pastor is supposed to know everything. Look, people ask me questions, you know, if I don't know, I'm not going to sit there and lie to you. If I, I just say, I don't know. When you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of, every, out of every city, notice he spake a parable. Okay, so we're told what's coming next is non-literal. Notice what he said. A sower went out to sow seed. And he sowed, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. Some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And another fell on the ground and sprang up and bare fruit and hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, he that had ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, what might the, uh, this parable be? Now, what's interesting about the parable of the sower is that some of the parables, Jesus himself tells us what it means. Some parables he doesn't, and we just have to figure it out, or we just study it out. Some of them he tells us. The disciples asked him, you know, what does this parable mean? Verse 10, and he said unto, the, unto you, and, and he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But, uh, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Now, in verse 11, he begins to explain the parable. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but look at verse 11. He says, now the parable is this. He says, the seed is the word of God. So here's what we know. And then he goes and explains what uh, the rest of it means. But here's what we know. The seed in this parable is the word of God. Here's what's interesting, though. Go back to 1 Peter. Did you keep your place there? 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. In the parable, Jesus said the seed represents the word of God. But, you know, in other parts of the Bible, I'll just give you one example. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Notice what the Bible says. Being born again, 1 Peter 1, 23. Being born again. That's talking about 
salvation, being born again, not of corruptible seed. Look, can you get born again of seed that has been corrupted? According to 1 Peter 1.23, the answer is no. I don't care who says otherwise. Why? You say, why? Because the Holy Ghost, under the inspiration of uh, the Holy Ghost, Peter said, being born not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, isn't it interesting that he called the seed the incorruptible word of God? He said the incorruptible seed is the word of God. Well, that matches what Jesus said. So you know what? It's pretty safe to assume that all throughout the Bible, or maybe in other parables that are not explained for us, whenever you see a seed, you can assume that it's the word of God. Why? Because I can prove it to you from other parts of, of Scripture. Not just because I make stuff up out of thin air. I can show you, well, look, I can go to a parable and say, look, there's a seed here. We don't know what the seed is, but we can assume it's the word of God. You say, why? Because in another parable, the seed was the word of God. Because in 1 Peter 1.23, he referred to the seed as the word of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is how you study the Bible. And by the way, this is how you write sermons. This is how you prove your points, by backing it up with Scripture. Notice, have I brought out a commentary and said, well, according to this guy, he said, no. According to Peter. According to the word of God. So when interpreting non-literal passages, parables, allegories, things like that, look for what things in that passage represent throughout the Bible. You'll find that oil often represents the Holy Spirit. You'll find that the seed often represents the word of God. You'll begin to see that throughout the Bible, you know, things. A sword often represents the word of God. So then you can start making application to stories, applications to other parables, by connecting those thoughts. Number nine, go, go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one. Should be fairly easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible. Let me give you a review for those of you taking notes. I'm giving you rules for Bible study, all right? Number one, make sure you understand the context. Who, what, when, where, why. Number two, what the narrator says prompts what the character says. Number three, and I'm not giving these to you in any specific order. They're, n they're not in order of importance. They're just in, in order that I... Honestly, the easiest way to go navigate through the Bible is how, how I put them in order. Number three, the statement trumps the story. Number four, approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. Number five, doctrine should not be drawn from a non-literal passage that contradicts the doctrine taught in a clear and literal passage. Number six, non-literal passage should not be should be used, excuse me, to reinforce doctrine, not as the only proof for a doctrine. Number seven, do not add a meaning to a symbolic passage that cannot be backed up by some other scripture. Number eight, when interpreting non-literal passages like parables, allegories, look for what things in the passage represent throughout the whole Bible, like the seed representing the word of God. Number nine, are you there in Revelation? Number nine, scripture that was revealed later, for example, the book of Revelation, I mean, the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible, right? So it's the latest book that was given to us, the word of God that was given to us. Now, here's what you need to understand. The word of God is settled in heaven. The word of God has always existed. The word of God has always been. The Bible, the words themselves, not just Jesus. We know Jesus is the word, and he's always existed. But the Bible itself has always existed. But it was given to man progressively. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the whole Bible. It was given to man in a certain order. And the book of Revelation was the last book that was given to man. 
So here's a tip or a rule for Bible study. Scripture that was revealed later, like, for example, the book of Revelation, should be used to interpret and shed light on Scripture that was revealed earlier, like, for example, the book of Daniel. A lot of people get messed up on Bible prophecy because they try to use Daniel to explain Revelation. You got it wrong. You're supposed to use the later scriptures to interpret and shed light upon the earlier scriptures. The Bible says in the Old Testament they saw a shadow. They saw a figure. They didn't see things clearly. In the New Testament, we'll look at Revelation chapter 1. Notice what verse 1 says about Revelation chapter 1. It's called, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does revelation mean? It means to reveal something. This book is revealing for us. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Notice, to show that we might see, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. According to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the purpose of the book is to reveal and to show the things which must shortly come to pass, the things in the future. Go to the book of Daniel. Let's see what Daniel says. Daniel, in the Old Testament, we find the major books of the, of the Old Testament, of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then you got the book of Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Here's what's interesting. In Daniel chapter 12, we just read where God told us the book of Revelation is to reveal to the servants and to show unto the servants the things which must shortly come to pass. Here's the question. Is the book of Revelation a sealed book, a hidden book that we cannot understand? According to Revelation, it's not. It's an open book. We can understand it. We can study it. We can get it. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says about the book of Daniel. Then I heard, but I understood not. Notice he's saying, I, didn't, I heard it, but I didn't understand it. Then said I, oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? Talking about the end times. He said, I got, I got what you're telling me, but I don't understand it. Can you explain it to me? Verse 9, and he said, go thy way, Daniel. Notice what he says about the book of Daniel. For the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So according to the book of Daniel, is the book of Daniel a book that we can understand on its own? No, it's closed. It's sealed. That's how the entire Bible is. That's why it's silly when people are like, well, I found this chapter in Ezekiel that kind of sounds like you have to repent of your sins to be saved. Are you serious? You don't use Ezekiel to interpret Romans. You use Romans to interpret Ezekiel. Do you, understand? you use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. You, you use Revelation. Look, when someone's trying to show you you're wrong about something clearly taught in Revelation by trying to show it to you out of Daniel, they got it backwards. Because scripture that was revealed later, like the book of Revelation, interprets and sheds light on scripture that was revealed earlier, like the book of Daniel. Now, along with that, let me say this. Obscure or difficult passages need to be interpreted in the light of well-understood and clear passages. So you don't go to Ezekiel for salvation. You go to John for salvation. You go to Romans for salvation. You understand what I'm saying? Say, Pastor, do you understand everything in Ezekiel? No, and neither do you. You know, so you know what? Obscure or difficult passages need to be interpreted in light of well understood and clear passages. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Number 11. We're almost done. We got 15, right? We're almost done. 
Number 11, I'm giving you rules for Bible study. Some of you are like, this is overwhelming. Stick to reading. Just read, all right? Eventually, as you're reading, these things will begin to make sense to you. Number 11, look for cultural norms explained within Scripture, not cultural norms found in extra-biblical material. Look for cultural norms explained within Scripture, not cultural norms found in extra-biblical material. Oftentimes, people try to sell you false doctrine by telling you, well, in the Jewish culture, they used to, listen to me, you don't know what they did in the Jewish culture 4,000 years ago. You don't know that. I don't know that. We know very little about how cultures were 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. So look, you say, are you against, you know, looking for cultural norms? I'm not against looking for cultural norms as long as you can find them in the Bible. But if you have to go to some book or some commentary or some dictionary and say, well, let me explain to you why the pre-trib rapture is true. Because in the Jewish weddings in the Old Testament, they, you're already done. You've already lost. If you can't prove it from the Bible, then you can't prove it at all. You don't go and prove scripture by cultural norms where you need extra biblical material. You have to be able to prove everything in the Bible. So look for cultural norms explained within the scriptures. You say, give me an example. John chapter 4, verse 9. Notice what it says. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 4, verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so is it accurate to preach that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, that the Samaritans... Uh, were looked down upon by the Jews. Is it accurate to preach that? So well, well, do you get that from a, docu- uh, from a commentary? No, I got it from the Word of God. God is telling us about a cultural norm. When you read about a cultural norm in the Bible, take note of it. Allow that to shed light to other passages. You know John chapter 4 and verse 9, where we read in the Bible that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, actually sheds a lot of light on the parable of uh, 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 of the good night, I, I just lost lost my train of thought on the parable of the Good Samaritan. You say why? Because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you've got a Jewish person who's been beat down and robbed. You've got a Levite and a priest that are Jews that pass by on the other side, and you've got a Samaritan who actually ministers to him. But according to John four nine, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Doesn't that bring a lot to that story? That it wasn't just another Jew helping a Jew, but it was someone who was actually seen as an enemy. That brings a lot to the story. But notice, I didn't go to a commentary for that. I didn't go to a dictionary for that. I didn't go to some radio program for that. I got that from the Bible. So look for cultural norms explained within Scripture, not cultural norms found in extra-biblical material, like the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Go to John chapter 1. You're there in John 4. Go to John chapter 1, verse 41. John chapter 1, verse 41. We're almost done. John chapter 1, verse 41. Here's rule number 12. Rule number 12. Allow the Bible to define itself. Allow the Bible to define itself by finding when it gives you definitions of words. The Bible serves as its own dictionary. So allow the Bible to define itself first by finding when it gives you definitions of words. You say, what do you mean? Often the Bible will define words for you. John 1.41, notice what it says. John 
he first findeth his own brother Simon, who saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So according to John 141, what does the word the Christ mean? It means the Messiah. So whenever you see Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ in the Bible, we know the word Christ means Messiah. Did I have to go take a Greek course to figure out what Christos means? Christos means uh, the anointed one, and it's the Messiah. I just read the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? You just allow the Bible to define itself. The Bible tells us we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So the Bible just told us what the word Christ means. It means Messiah. You don't look, you don't need that some man teach you. The Holy Ghost will teach you. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. In the Old Testament, you'll find the first and second books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Allow the Bible to define itself by finding when it gives you the definitions of words. So from for, for the rest of my life in ministry, if I ever find myself in a passage where I have to define for someone what the word Christ means, I'm not going to say, well, in the Greek, I'm just going to say, look, in John 141, the Bible says, the Messiah's is, which is being interpreted, the Christ. Let me give you another example. And you can, there's lots of these in the Bible. Let me just give you one more. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 9. 1 Samuel 9, 9. Before, before time in Israel, 1 Samuel 9, 9. Remember, find the first, second book, 1 second Samuel, 1 second Kings, 1 second Chronicles. 1 Samuel 9, 9. Before in Israel, when a, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, come and let us go to the seer. Now, the seer is not a term that's used a lot in the Bible. He says, come and let us go to the seer, for he that is now called a prophet was before called a seer. So look, the Bible just told us what's a seer. It's a prophet. Because they used to call them seers. Now they call them prophets. So guess what? From now on, whenever you read the word seer in the Bible, you know what it means. It's a prophet. Where do you get that from? From the Bible. Because you should allow the Bible to define itself by finding when it gives you the definitions of words. Say, well, what if the Bible doesn't give you a definition to a word? Okay, well, here's point number 13. Allow the Bible to define itself by finding where the Bible quotes itself. Allow the Bible to define itself by finding where the Bible quotes itself. Go to Psalm 22. This is an example I use a lot, and I just was being lazy, and I didn't want to figure out another one, so I'm going to the one that I've used before. But go to Psalm 22. By the time I got... I was writing this sermon. By the time I got to point 13, I was kind of done, you know. So I'm just like, I know you've seen this before, but let me just give you another example. Psalm 22, open your Bible right in the, book of Psalm, in, the, in the center. You'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now, you don't have to go there, but in Hebrews chapter 2, if you want to write this down, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, this psalm is quoted. And in Hebrews 2, 12, it says this, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So in Psalm 22, 22, it says, in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. In Hebrews, that psalm is quoted, but it's quoted as, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. You say, is that a contradiction? No, it's God defining a word for us. What does the word church mean? It means congregation. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's a congregation. Now, I could have impressed you and said, well, you know, the Greek word, ekklesia, means a called out assembly. 
and which means an assembly of people. I, I could have done that, but or I could have just let the Bible tell you it's a congregation. Now, look, some, some preachers, their goal is to impress you. Their goal is not to help you, to help you understand the Bible, teach you the Bible. So you say, how do I allow, allow the Bible to define itself? Allow the Bible to define itself by finding where the Bible quotes itself. Allow the Bible to define itself by finding, you know, find the parallel passages. Have you ever wondered why, you know, it's like, well, the Gospels are dealing with a lot of the same stories. Or First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings deals with a lot of the same stories found in First and Second Chronicles. Why is God repeating himself? He gives us parallel passages so we can study them side by side and get insight into the Word of God. So allow the Bible to define itself by finding where the Bible quotes itself. Number 14. Number 14. Stay there in, in Psalms. In fact, go to the book of Proverbs. Go to the book of Proverbs just real quickly because we've got to finish this up. Number 14. When the Bible, here's, here's rule number 14. When the Bible does not specifically speak to an issue, we use biblical principles to guide decisions. When the Bible does not specifically speak to an issue, we use biblical principles to guide decisions. You say, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. Smoking cigarettes. Is smoking cigarettes specifically spoken of in Scripture? Where God says, thou shalt not smoke marble cigarettes. The Bible doesn't say that, right? Now, is it good for people to smoke cigarettes? No, right? I mean, you know, logic would tell you that. Just read the note on the actual carton. It would tell you it's not good for you. But is there a principle in Scripture that we can find to guide that decision? Well, you don't have to go there. First Corinthians 6.19 says what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you have not your own, and you are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we find a principle here in the Bible that says, hey, your the body, your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. So you ought to take care of your temple. It's probably not good for you to put smoke in there that's going to give you cancer. Now, does the Bible specifically teach against smoking cigarettes? No. But we can find a biblical principle that guides that decision. You understand that? But here's the thing. You can apply 1 Corinthians 6 to, you know, being healthy, to gluttony. You can apply it to lots of things. So when the Bible does not specifically speak to an issue, we use biblical principles to guide decisions. Number 15. This is the last one. Go to Proverbs 11 and verse 14. Proverbs chapter number 11 and verse 14. Here's, here's number 15. Seek counsel. Seek counsel. Proverbs 11 and verse 14. Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There is nothing wrong with asking for help or seeing what other mature believers think of a subject before you go public with it. You know, there's not, sometimes we, we, we call that get a sanity check. Sometimes I receive phone calls from pastors in our movement. Sometimes I make phone calls to pastors in our movement, and they'll call me and they'll say, hey, Brother Jimenez, I just need a sanity check. You know, I'm looking at this passage. I'm, I'm studying this out. This is what I think it means. This is what I'm planning on saying. What do you think about it? Have you ever heard that before? You know, and, and I can tell them, like, yeah, you know, actually, I preach that also. And, and here's another reference to back you up. Or I can say, hey, you know what? I think you might be missing something here. Sometimes I call preachers, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? I've never heard anybody talk about this. What do you think about this? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you can connect it to this verse. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that reinforces. Or, no, you know what? I don't think that's right because you're missing this. Oh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You know, before you go on Facebook and call some pastor a heretic, maybe call somebody and say, what do you think about that? 
You know, maybe call somebody or seek counsel or why? Because in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Go to Ecclesiastes. You're going to probably just one book over. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let me say this and I'm done. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. Don't miss this. And there is no new thing under the sun. Please understand this. If you're the only person who came up with a certain doctrine, you're wrong. If you're the only person, me and my four friends are the only ones that understand, you're wrong. There's no new thing under the sun. There's nothing our church believes that people haven't believed. People try to act like, you know, when I was talking about the reprobate. You know, people are like, you guys came up with that reprobate thing all on your own. Nobody believes that. That's why in the documentary, we're putting Jack Hiles preaching the, the, on the reprobates. Why? Because we didn't, we're not the only ones that believe that. Amen. There's nothing we believe that we're the only ones. Now, there's lots of things that we believe that other Baptists don't believe. I get that. But there's nothing we teach from this pulpit that you're going to find hundreds of thousands or millions of people in this world that believe the same thing. If you're the only one, aunt, me and my four friends, we're the only ones that got it right. Everybody else has it wrong. Every church is corrupt. No, you're corrupt. You're wrong. Because there's no new thing under the sun. And if you are the only person who came up with a certain doctrine, here's what I know. You're wrong. Because there's no new thing under the sun. There's no new thing under the sun. Let me give these to you real quickly so you can make sure you have them all. Number one, make sure you understand the context. Who, what, when, where, why. Number two, what the narrator says trumps what the character says. Number three, the statements trump the story. Number four, approach the Bible as being literal unless otherwise stated. Number five, doctrine should not be drawn from non-literal passages that contradict doctrine that is taught in clear and literal passages. Number six, non-literal passages should be used to reinforce doctrine, not as the only proof for a doctrine. Number seven, do not add meanings to a non-literal passage or symbolic passage that cannot be backed up by some other scripture. Number eight, when interpreting non-literal passages, i.e. parables or symbolic passages, look for what the things represent throughout the Bible. Number nine, scriptures that were revealed later interpret and shed light on scriptures that were revealed earlier. Number 10, obscure and difficult passages need to be interpreted in the light of well-understood and clear passages. Number 11, look for cultural norms explained within the scripture, not cultural norms found in extra-biblical material. Number 12, allow the Bible to define itself by finding when it gives you the definition of a word. Number 13, allow the Bible to define itself by finding when the Bible quotes itself. Number 14, when the Bible does not specifically speak to an issue, we use biblical principles to guide the decisions. Number 15, seek counsel. Those are rules. I'm sure there's more. Those are just the ones I came up with. But those are rules to guide your Bible study. You say, well, Pastor Jimenez, how in the world am I going to know when something's being quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament? How am I going to know? Some of these stuff's confusing. and I don't know who's speaking in the narrative and their character. How am I going to know? This is why step one is read the Bible a lot. Be very careful. Be very careful. And, and let me say this to you guys that want to be pastors. Be very careful about starting off your ministry with, I'm going to come out with this brand new thing no one's ever heard. If every other pastor who's read the Bible 20, 25 times all believe the same thing, all understand the same thing, you may be the problem. I, I'm going to come up with this brand new thing. Nobody else has this. It's going to be, no, no, no. 
like, you know what? We just need to humble ourselves and not be like the Bible tells us in the book of Acts about the, Athe- uh, 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 the Athenians that they were looking to tell and hear some new things. You know, seek counsel, study the Bible, read the Bible cover to cover a lot, many times, at least five times, and get a good grounding as to what the Word of God says. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the Bible. Thank you for your word, Lord. I, I know that this is kind of a different sermon, uh, but I think it could be a very helpful sermon if people apply it, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be people of the word, that we would read the Bible, know the Bible, understand the Bible, and that we would study it with character and integrity, not to prove points by twisting scripture, but by coming to the Bible and just wanting to know what does the Bible say. Father, I pray you'd help us to study, to show ourselves to prove unto God a workman that we are not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.